This is Let's Break Good, the podcast where good is just not good enough. I'm your host, Joe Agoda, and on today's episode, an interview with a corporate maverick whose volunteering work in a war-torn country inspired a bold idea that would convince a multi-billion dollar company to take on a radical new social impact initiative. You'll hear how the company got employees to line up for a pay cut in order to use their business skills to tackle social challenges in communities across Africa and Asia. Then later, what it takes to break good in the workplace when your company culture is just not yet ready. So let's do it. Let's get started. I want to break free. All right. Welcome, Mr. Gib Bullock. He is the author of the recently published book, The Entrepreneur, Confessions of a Corporate Insurgent, which is now available on Amazon.com. Uh, Gib's book chronicles his journey, both personal and professional, that really changed how the corporate world views purpose, wellness, and profit making. He's a speaker, an award-winning consultant, and thankfully, he has decided to grace us as the very first interview on Let's Break Good. I couldn't think of anyone better. He embodies uh, the kind of motto of our podcast that good is just not good enough. So thank you and welcome, Gib. Joe, thank you very much indeed for that warm, warm welcome. Uh, and to be the first, it's a great honor to be the first in your podcast. Let's let's hope I'm not the last and let's hope people don't, don't tune out after the one. Let's make it interesting. Uh, let's do it. I'm sure it will be. Um, so let's just jump right into it. So uh, my first question for you is when you first realized that purpose and social impact really needed to be at the heart of your career. Um, so I guess my question is, when do you think you first broke good? Um, I don't know whether these two things actually coincided in terms of breaking good. And I also don't think it was really a conscious effort. I, I'm, I'm very honest in the book that you mentioned uh, that this was not something that I had you know, from a very, very early age uh, that I wanted to work in you know, the social sector or do good with my life. I had grown up in Scotland. I was in a community. I suppose some of these social values do, you know, were there. But, but I'll be honest, I came out of university wanting to uh, get the best paid job I could possibly find. I wanted to drive a fast car. I wanted to, um, you know, have a have a gold card uh, on, on on my luggage tag and all these little trappings of success and that in the and I'm showing my age here late eighties early nineties these were the the hallmarks of success they these were the KPIs that were the things that people wanted that made you happy supposedly that made you successful supposedly and it's not really until much later on that I discovered that it wasn't these things and so. It wasn't a conscious thing. It was something as simple as just reading an article in, uh, it happened the Financial Times, one day, March 1999, which switched on a light bulb in my head. It was an article that was talking about the need for business skills in the developing world. And there was I sort of sitting there thinking, okay, I've got enough money. I've ticked the box on the fast car. I'm living supposedly the dream but it was somebody else's dream. And that was the sort of trigger. I suppose that was the, the catalyst. And uh, I'll pause there and let you sort of come back. 
Yeah, no, I I would agree that oftentimes Breaking Good, it's not like some earth shattering big moment. I think for some people it is, but for others, I think it's just like you've described. Uh, but maybe there was some experience. I know that you had done some field work early in your career that really changed your perspective and saw the possibility for, uh, you know, kind of private sector and corporate skills to be used in social good, maybe you can bring us back to like something that happened or uh, something you were involved in early in your career, like in the field that maybe got you, you know, moving towards the trajectory to break good. Sure. You're absolutely right about, about that. Um, the article that I read in 1999 uh, was the, tr- was the trigger. And, and I would emphasize that part that it's not always something that is, conscious uh, that you get that it, it can be something that seems insignificant at the time it's an idea and it's how then you act on it and I acted on that particular uh, impulse it was an NGO looking for partnering with big business to get people to take sabbaticals for a period of time and I at the time was working in Accenture way back then it was called Anderson Consulting but uh, this was 1999 as I say and I found myself within a year as their first volunteer in the Balkans as part of this business partnership program with an NGO called VSO. And that was really when the rubber hit the road on breaking good, if you will. I was on something like a 90 plus percent salary reduction, living as a volunteer in um, the Republic of Macedonia, which is just next to Kosovo, and it was just after the Kosovo War. And that's when I really realised where my MBA, my business skills, my consulting expertise could actually be applied in a different context and for a different kind of impact. And I was leaping out of bed in the in, in morning and I'd, I'd say, you know, if, if purpose is a drug, then I'd become an addict at that point. So that was, that was the big change. Every single day during that year was a new experience and, and had me questioning, you know, do I really want to go back to um, that old life? Uh, that was really very much just about making money and not so much about making a difference. Great. I, I like that uh, way you framed a purpose. And it's definitely, you can feel the difference when you've kind of found that passion that is going to allow you to break good, that's going to allow you to take on you know the challenges that come with it. You have to be passionate about it. So it started with an article and then it brought you to Macedonia, which was coming overcoming a conflict, and you were be- bringing your uh, business skills there. And I know that's covered actually pretty nicely in the book. Uh, but I also find that when you're, saying, um, Joe, I guess what I'm saying is just it's, it's a case of these things are not always um, following, you know, your 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 path or, or whatever that happens to be. The true north isn't always such a planned thing. It's more emergent. I didn't know where this was going to lead me. Um, when I read that article, I didn't know when I went there that I was going to come back and, and, and find that, uh, that I had a career in this area. But my, my, my main point is just following that hunch, following that inner voice, that intuition, wherever that comes from, I, I believe is a very, very important thing. It's probably the scarier path. path. It's probably the thing that people will say, you're, you know, you're crazy. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? That's not what you should be doing. But if it feels right to you, it's the right thing. Um, And you don't have to know where it's going to lead you. You just have to trust. Yeah, I'm definitely familiar with the idea of people asking, what are you doing? You know, for you is why are you giving up this high powered, high paid job to go to this, 
you know, country that probably many people had never even heard of. And yet you personally are like, I've never been more excited to get to work in the morning. Uh, you know, and I really feel that's a common thing that I hear people who've found their passion have started breaking good, that even the mundane or things that people wouldn't entirely understand why you're pursuing it for you, there's nothing more exciting and you're waking up every day just to get started um, on whatever, you know, challenge at work you want to take on. Um, I'm wondering if you can give us maybe just one person that you met during that time that maybe, you know, flipped your idea of what business could be doing. Um, I know for me, it took me some time to really understand that, you know, a corporate was not just this big behemoth with a bunch of money, but that there was actually real skills to be offered. And at the same time, the people in the field had a lot to offer mutually beneficial. So I'm wondering if there's any person or any little story you have from your time in Macedonia that kind of just revealed to you the power that, that, you know, behind this taking your business skills could, could have. Sure. I mean, um, it, it was an amazing time, really. It was a very, you know, magical and quite transformative time. And it's difficult to to nail it down to one person because there were so many people that I uh, interacted with then that were uh, an inspiration. I was working in a, a very small team of maybe half a dozen people in the west coast. It's not was it coast, it's a landlocked country, but west border of Macedonia, um, during the ethnic tensions between the Albanian minority and the Slavic majority. And I went to this office trying to help develop business plans, help them um, become a self-sustaining little office. They were providing advice to small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, so they were all young and you know progressive, forward-looking people. I would single out one person, though, who was really quite inspiring because she was probably breaking good uh, in her own way. Um, as in her late 20s, she was a working mother. Um, that was a, a unusual thing, believe it or not, in Macedonia back in, in 2000, 2001. Uh, she was also uh, of the Slavic majority, but in this town, very much a, a minority. There were very few women that would work. And in a office or dominated by men of a different religion, um, so she was breaking so many rules, I suppose, and very smart, very bright, very eager to learn. And I guess just seeing how, yeah, coaching and, and supporting someone who really wanted to learn could make a difference. But then I would also agree with uh, your other point about how much I had to learn as well. And, you know, I'm sure that I took away a whole lot more than I actually um, was able to impart uh, during my time there. I learned lots about yeah myself, and I learned lots about the role of business, and um, that it's about more than just making making money for some big corporates, which was what my day job was back in the in the mainstream. Got it. Well, I, th I think that's a good segue to my next question, which is now that you you had this experience during your career, and I think that's something simple, you know. That, that happens to people who break good. They have this first experience. They see what's possible, but then they're thrown back into a place where those around them have not had that experience. They have not broke good. And yet at the same time, you see the power that your organization has, the resources, the network, the people, and you're kind of, you've been energized and you're ready to take it forward, but it's not that easy. And one of my favorite stories from you 
one that's in the book and I think for me was inspirational exemplified example of breaking good of how you convinced the leadership at Accenture to take on your bold social impact initiative that kind of came out of that experience. So I'm hoping you could kind of talk to us a little bit about coming out of that experience back into the kind of belly of the corporate beast and what you did to try to start to get your organization to break good. Well, it, it definitely resonates uh, with me what you're saying about uh, coming back and, and finding yourself in a whole cohort of people who who have not been having this experience. And um, it's just a, a yeah a word of warning to people who go away and, and, and have a life changing experience doing doing something uh, which to them is amazing and having incredible experiences every day. You come back to the day to day life and don't expect people to be super wowed or incredibly interested and you know they'll ask you one question maybe two and then you get back to uh the reality of day-to-day stuff who won the football uh soccer i think you call it at the weekend um you know what's happening here what was on television last night and and you want to talk to them about all these experiences and people you know you just have to understand people aren't interested but to your point in terms of the engaging leadership and that's where um Yes, I guess there were some guerrilla tactics involved in, in, in doing that. I have long said that when you have an idea, and, and the idea I was having in these long winter nights in Macedonia was, you know, how, how could I do more than just have me as one individual trying to sort of be working as a volunteer? How much more could I get done with my normal team? How could I industrialize this offering there is clearly a need for business and technology expertise but a lack of affordable uh, skills on the ground how could we get that expertise to where it's most needed around the world but where there's there's least access and the idea of what then became and i'm sure we'll talk about this extension development partnerships uh, a non-profit group that was when the idea germinated do you develop a 50 slide deck powerpoint thing do you develop a large uh, Excel financial model around the whole thing um, or a long, lengthy Word document. I chose instead uh, a tactic that I had once tried out earlier on in my consulting career, uh, and that was just to write a fake press article. So just imagine what the future is a few years down the line. Define what's happened uh, in these couple of years into the future. What has happened? Who said what about your idea? Um, how can you articulate the future and help people reimagine what the future could be? So that was the particular tool, if you will, or tactic that I used and uh, sent it on to the most senior person I knew uh, in the firm who sent it on to the chairman uh, who invited me to a breakfast to discuss it. So that would be my word of advice. It was no more than two pages, but it got me in front of the chairman for breakfast. Yeah, no, I, I love that story, Gib. I try to imagine, you know, a uh, high-level, high-powered consult, you know, consulting officer getting this news article about, you know, this initiative you want to take on and reading it as if it was real. So getting this press release and I believe you, you describe in the book as, um, you know, what Accenture had done through the project and getting them to imagine after they break good, in a way, what does the organization look like? What value is it bringing? So I always love that approach you took, um, I think the guerrilla tactics is something I definitely would love to hear more about and have you share about because I think 
you know, it's a really unique and creative way to get your organization to break good. It's also a bold and risky strategy, but it pays off. So in this one, you got the fake, you know, future news article in front of the right people. And they say, hey, come on to this breakfast. We want to hear more. Um, so maybe you can help pick up the story from there. So you've kind of got their eye, you've got their ear, you have this experience, and now you're ready to maybe to try to see how I can transfer this idea and get it to pick up at the organization. Um, and this is where I have struggled. And it's, you know, it's the achievement when you get there is amazing, but getting there, the journey to getting your organization to buy in is so hard. So you get the first step. Maybe you could just take us a little further down that. It's a fragile uh, It's a fragile thing, actually, uh, John. I know I'm speaking to a fellow uh, maverick here who's uh, uh, been on a similar kind of journey, but um, I found myself, I actually, for, for one reason or another, found myself sleeping in and almost was was late and missed this breakfast. So it's just amazing how your whole fate sort of balances on, uh, you know, pivotal meetings and and bits of luck and things like that. So a lot of luck was involved. Got the breakfast, sat down talking about the ideas uh, that were in this high-level press um, press cutting. So that got the retention of the chairman and a couple of other people that he had invited to the breakfast. But they wanted, obviously, more information. Um, what's the business case? Can you flesh this idea out a bit more? And that's when, so now we're in summer, I would say, of 2001. So for the next five or six months, while I was doing the day job, I had a little team of um, fellow mavericks or volunteers, if you will, people who had read the article, bought into it, said, can I help in some way? So there's maybe six or seven of us working on the side of our desks to get more information, to develop out the financials, to um, yeah, find out what uh, you know, find out if we could make uh, this business self-sustaining. The idea was that we would have Accenture staff on a salary reduction. What would that salary reduction have to be? Um, maybe half salary, whatever. Um, would NGOs need this service. What else was out there like this? So we were doing some of this research, and it's uh, interesting. A little anecdote, actually. I'll, I'll give you one of the uh, people who helped me out, uh, an Indian woman called Dali Sangera, uh, who was working in the finance uh, area at that time, helped me out and sat down with me again, just as a favour, to go through the numbers and and to share with me what the true costs were um, in the firm. Fast forward to last year, uh, 2018, November, that same person is still in Accenture, very senior now, working out of Singapore. And uh, we had lunch together in Singapore when I was passing through there to do a book lunch. And um, she had supported um, my book financially with the crowdfunding. And she talked about an example of a the Indian girl that deserves education that's in the book and how do we actually... What's the business case for developing talent in India? And she just said to me, you know, I was that Indian child. She'd come to the UK from India, um, not even speaking a word of English till the age of 10. She learns English. She joins Accenture. She helps me uh, be, you know, in a pivotal way to, to start ADP. And then we meet up uh, probably 20 years later. And she tells me uh, how she has enjoyed reading the book and how it resonated with her. So people, you know, people are willing to go out of their way to help when you put that kind of purpose, um, that kind of lightning rod of of 
meaning in front of people. I think they, they really help a lot. Excellent. I like that antidote and uh, resonates with me, which is that I think that there are many people inside organizations that want to break good, but they know what comes with it. They know the risk taking and they're just looking for someone brave enough that they can contribute to. So that, that story definitely uh, resonates with me. Um, so now if we look back at the, the your story that you've shared with us so far, you've had this kind of eureka moment. It was an article that brought you to the field to a war-torn country where you see how your business skills and acumen and learning, you know, can be applied, can be applied to the kind of, you know, social good space. You've also seen that the people who are working on the front lines are capable, they're smart and they have things to teach you. And so you come back to your company, you come back to the belly of the beast and you bring one of your guerrilla tactics, which is a press release talking about the initiative that you want to do uh, that will allow Accenture to break good, to bring its business skills for social good. And I know that you describe it as a not for loss effort and that it's going to be something that actually brings value to the company. I think that's an important lesson as well, which is when you have your social good idea, you need to pitch it to the bottom line, to your organization. So you're able to do that. It sounds like you're, you know, you're building some consensus among the organization. That's a good idea. And they're willing to try it out. Um, they're willing, you know, it sounds like there's employees who are willing to take their salary reduction to get experiences like the one you had and get to put their business skills to good use in the social sector. Um, but I know that there's, this is still a large organization, you know, multi-million dollar organization you're working at. And whenever you're the head ahead of the curve on something, um, you know, it's you're breaking norms. You're getting people to change how they think and how they work, and it's messy. You're right, and it's difficult, and it takes a toll. And I think in your book, The Entrepreneur, you're really honest in you know really get to the heart of that. Um, but I would say there's both two sides to it. There's also an excitement and an energy when you see the impact of breaking good. So maybe you, we're going to get to both sides of it. But I want to start with like some of the peaks, some inspiration, like as you were, you know, developing and growing and seeing this initiative start to take impact. Can you tell us some of those, those moments that continue to keep you fueled some of those peaks uh, during the ADP? Yeah, day? sure. I mean, there's, um, I'm just listening to you uh, talking about uh, people taking salary reductions and leadership buying in and it all sounds uh, like, like plain sailing. Um, I know you didn't uh, intend it to sound like that and it, you know, some days it was plain sailing and other days um, you felt that you were going uh, backwards at great speed. Um, getting getting people, yeah, to accept a salary reduction, that was the the, the, the core of the, the not-for-loss offering as you uh, described it or as I've been describing it for quite a while. You know, people said, you're crazy. Who's going to take a salary reduction? We did a survey of staff and showed that there was not only a lot of people interested in doing that, but a correlation between some of the best performers and um, people willing to take a reduction. Um, would NGOs actually pay money to buy our services when they could get that or were used to getting that pro bono or free of charge from some of our competitors? Well, yes, it turned out they would if they could get a service that they could rely on when they wanted it, where they wanted it, with the same kind of quality rather than the sort of piecemeal pro bono thing. Uh, would leadership buy in? Well, they started to buy in, but not all at the same time. So, you know, we got the thing off the ground. And, um, yeah, 
lots of inspiring stories, I say, that would that would keep us going. I found generally that the way that I would really, what really motivated me was to get back into the field, was to go back and visit uh, the projects that we were, were starting up. Uh, a few years in, we had multiple projects with dozens of people, then subsequently hundreds of people at a time uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, in India, uh, in all over the place, doing doing things where their own core business skills were being used to make a difference. Whether you were an IT person, you could be revamping a child sponsorship NGO's you know, processes and making them digitized. If you're a supply chain person, you could be using your logistics expertise to improve the way that drugs or medicines uh, were distributed at the last mile. And I know you've got a background in UNICEF, so you know that was one of our big clients, for example. And getting out and seeing these projects speaking to the clients and how wowed they were by the people, you know, are all your teams as great as the two or three people you gave us? And then speaking to the teams themselves over a dinner or uh, more likely as a Scotsman, it might have been a, a drink late at night and hearing, you know, how this was just something that had been the best thing, the best project they'd ever done, the best thing they'd been doing in their lives and their careers, how they wanted to do more of this kind of thing. That presented a problem, of course, because we were a rotational model. The deal was you go and do that for six months, three to six months, and then you go back to your normal salary and your normal job. For some people, they um, that wasn't enough. They decided to leave. Uh, but many came back, which was great, and it was very much a retention tool a leadership development tool. So the highs, yeah, I would say many, many examples. Uh, yeah, we got some nice awards. That was that was great. It was great recognition for our team and um, for what we were trying to do. Um, but we weren't doing it for awards. We weren't doing it for that. We were doing it because we felt it was the right thing. We felt that there was a need, there was a gap, and we had the capabilities to do something about it. Something I think interesting that you've mentioned, um, which I believe is at the heart of the business case for Breaking Good, was that those that were willing to take the salary reduction to take their skills and apply it to social good were the highest performers yeah. at Accenture. So I think that's a really interesting point yeah, because I think many companies are like, yeah, social good, that goes in the corner. That's the charity. That's the philanthropy. Oh, people can go volunteer for a nice little day, but it's, you know, it's not part of the mainline business. It's something that's over there and we do it for marketing, cause marketing. But here you are saying that the most talented inside, you know, one of the world's most high-powered management consulting companies, so you're talking about the highest performers of the highest performers are willing to take their salary cut to apply their skills in this new way. Um, so I'm wondering if you could expound on that a little bit about what kind of skills you think they gained by taking part in this initiative and, you know, if there are any things that you felt like really motivated them to to want to do it and take part. So in I'm it. not saying that the, that everyone who was a top performer in the firm wanted to go to the other side of the world and on half their salary. Not not at all. But we did find through a feasibility study early on that there was a correlation between performance levels and levels of interest. And today, just as an anecdote uh, in uh, within Accenture, there are over 50,000 people on the uh, interest list, waiting list, if you will, uh, to reduce their salary and do this kind of work. So that just gives you a barometer of the level of interest in, that people have in in having a role with purpose. But in terms of what what do they get out of it, their motivations were 
sometimes very altruistic. Sometimes they wanted a good story to uh, have on their resume when they applied for an MBA. I mean, I'll be honest about it. It's not everyone was going for absolutely the the reasons that I would have wanted them to do it. But many, I would say the vast majority, were doing it because they just wanted to be part of something bigger than themselves, to do more than just make big corporates a bit more successful. If you are doing a project where you can tangibly see that whether you do a good job or a bad job, lives are impacted. Um, life and death can be part of it, in fact, when it comes to access to medicines initiative initiatives or sanitation initiatives and things like that. That's highly, highly motivating for people. They would get an experience that would give them international work, which is a big tick in the box, but also cross-cultural work, working with different cultures, whether that be uh, in Kampala in Uganda or whether that would be in Nairobi or whether that would be you know, in, in New Delhi in India. You would be working with people in a different culture. And indeed, your own team would often be multidisciplinary, but also from different um, different parts of Accenture. So you, you would have teams, we would have teams that might involve a, a manager from Paris, a consultant from New York, and a senior manager that could be coming from South Africa, all on the same team. So that interworking, that teamwork, uh, was very sort of diverse, if you will, and diverse in terms of also gender as well. We had a, a great mix, probably a bias slightly towards more women than men on, on our projects. But as well as cross-cultural experience, it was also cross-sectoral in many cases. We were working at that nexus between the private sector and, and business, sometimes with a government, sometimes with an NGO, sometimes with a whole mix, a whole coalition of other businesses, a government agency, a donor like a Gates Foundation or a, a USAID contributing to the, the, uh, the project. And so all of these skills, they may not be immediately relevant, I don't think, to someone going back into the firm uh, the next day or the day after the project finishes. But I'm a strong believer that in the next few years, having people with that ability, that the, these kind of experiences will actually be gold dust as we start to see the boundaries blur between where business goes, where government goes, where charities go. And I talked a lot about a fourth sector emerging. We will need fourth sector skill sets, people that are comfortable working across these divides and have experience in working there. Uh, so I think it's a very rich skill set for people, if not today, more in the next five or 10 years of their career. This is our interview with Mr. Gib Bullock. In the second half of our discussion, we'll be talking about sustaining, breaking good long term and how to find your passion and purpose in the workplace without losing your sanity. So I, I want to take now this energy that you've described of the value that it's bringing. You're seeing it on the front lines. You're seeing it with these employees that are going through your program. But as I understand from your book and from my experience, you're still going back to the Accenture leadership that may not fully see it on a day-to-day -day basis. They may look and say, you know, well, you know, the profits aren't as big for this quarter as other units. So they're going to question it. So maybe you can talk me a little bit through, you know, now you've built some evidence, you've built some momentum. How is it as you continue to bring it back to Accenture leadership? What's their reaction? What's the support? Well, What's the pushback? Of course, 
leadership um, and it's you know that big sort of um, generic term, amorphous term. Leadership are all uh, different. There are different attitudes to this. I had generally a lot of support from the senior leadership, the very top leadership when I began. Um, you know, but it wasn't everybody. You know, somebody, some people would think, you know, what the hell are you doing? Um, why are we not using these people on for-profit making uh, projects? So it's not universal. But if I was to generalize, yeah, lots of support, but it's fragile, that support, because leadership, again, in quotes, uh, moves on sometimes. They retire, especially if they're at the more senior levels. They get fired. They... Um, have problems in their own bit of the business that takes their eye off the ball and they can't give you quite as much bandwidth and support as they maybe could before. And so it was a sort of somewhat perpetual relationship management exercise to keep, um, continue to keep the leadership on board. And this is something that I, I probably would say I, 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 I did well in uh, at certain times and less well at other times in terms of engaging a broad swathe of, of senior leaders. And it did feel to me that, you know, after winning an argument for, hey, we're going to do this in 2002, having to make the case again in 2007 and again in 2011, and then there's a whole new crop coming in in 2014. And um, not only did I find myself having to make the the you know the, the business case for what we were doing originally, I was wanting to make the business case for where we should be in 2020, 2025, and what we could do. And it was difficult. It was, it was really difficult, not because people are bad or didn't want to help, but it's just institutional memory is short. And, um, yeah, it, 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 it's a constant, constant battle. Yeah, and that's something I, I, you know, why I recommend your book uh, is I think you really are true and raw about that process um, and what it takes to keep going and the toll it takes on on you. So actually, that segues to my next question, which is, you know, there's definitely peaks to breaking good when you see the difference you're making, when you see the lives that you're changing, the lives that you're improving. Uh, it keeps you fueled to keep going, but there are valleys in between as you have to deal with those who may not, you know, be on board, those who actually may want to bring you down, who are jealous, et cetera. So I'm wondering if you, you know, can share with us some tips or what you did to help keep persevering to keep through those valleys. I think as you've alluded to a few times today is that, yeah, there's high points, but though there's those wide valleys in between and you have to survive them. So maybe you can talk us a little bit through, you know, how you persevered and any advice you have for people, you know, who are on their journey and, and know that they're in it for the long haul, but they know it's yeah, going it's, to be. Um, if you, if you, you know, if, if you want to be an entrepreneur, um, then it's certainly not going to be the easiest career. If you want a nice, easy uh, nine to five job and, and steady, this is not the role for you. Breaking good is probably not the, the role for you, but you're probably, if you're listening to this podcast, you may well be, Stubborn, like I was, uh, persistent, um, not wanting to take no for an answer. These are qualities that you you have to really have um, in spades if you're going to be able to um, keep the momentum up, keep your own energy up. Uh, I sometimes use the analogy of that little um, iPhone battery thing, you know, when it goes down, 
all too rapidly these days, I would say. Um, and you get into the red uh, or you get into the yellow and then it goes down into the red. Um, I felt that with my own energy sometimes and you find yourself going into the red. And then, again, different tools to, to pick yourself back up, revisiting and reminding yourself of the mission, the purpose why you're doing what you're doing that can be through that for me was through trips to the field connecting with the clients connecting with people as I talked about earlier on but also and this is something again we'll probably come to but looking after oneself as well um, is crucially important I've subsequently discovered that in the social enterprise space there is a huge issue with burnout uh, amongst social entrepreneurs, these Ashoka fellows or Schwab fellows, these these people who are trying to drive business solutions as opposed to non-profit solutions, but business solutions to, to social challenges. There's a huge rate of burnout. It, the day job is never done. You can't go home and say, yeah, my job is done. Great. I'll go back in tomorrow. It's a 24-7 existence. And... Um, you know, there's never such a thing as enough is good. It's, it's good enough. You're always striving for the next thing. Um, you don't do status quo. You push yourself beyond um, what you would get in a normal, I guess, salary, salaried job. So I think if there's a problem for the social entrepreneur, there's probably a problem for the social intrapreneur as well that's as yet maybe undiagnosed because it's a newer phenomenon. But uh, this is something, again, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, I can see that um, I probably wasn't looking after myself well enough. I wasn't taking enough breaks. Uh, you're always online. You're always working. So, you know, I don't know what it will be for, for, for other people, but um, I'm now much better at uh, balancing that work and life, balancing the being with the doing, taking really proper digital detox breaks when I go on a vacation, for example. So lots lots in that to unpick, I'm sure, uh, Joe, but this is with uh, with hindsight I'm speaking. Yeah, I want to definitely dig into that a little bit more. I think first I want to just reflect on what you said there. And, and actually what stuck out to me is the way you talked about how you survived your valleys um, through a little bit of stubbornness, perseverance, going to the field, seeing what's going on, I really believe that rubs off on others at an organization who are also experiencing valleys. And, you know, I think there are people who want to contribute. They're not going to be that maverick, but they're going to support, contribute to that maverick. And that goodwill and that, you know, evidence of, of breaking good and the power of it when you're in that valley, I find that even the little things from your colleagues who may not be at the same level as you, but are seeing that you're in that valley and that you're still going forward, there's something inspirational behind it. So, um, you know, I really believe that you persevering is one of the reasons that Accenture Development Partnership still exists today um, and is still going strong. So before we go into, I think, what you started to talk about, which I want to go into, which is the, you know, balancing mental health with Breaking Good, I first want to just make sure I give you a moment to reflect on uh, Accenture Development Partnership's um, you know, you write it for, I think, you'll tell me how many years you you, there were so many employees that, that, you know, went through it. You have impacted thousands of lives, um, probably saved NGOs millions of dollars. Um, so before we go on, I, I just wonder if you might do a little bit of nostalgic, a little bit of reminiscing about 
because I don't want to gloss over that about the huge you know, achievement of getting this company to break good at that level because I haven't really seen it. Um, I've seen it a little ways in other places, but not as much. So I'm wondering if there's any final kind of, you know, reflection you want to give us on your 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 time with leading yeah. Accenture well, Development. Well, it's generous of you. You're saying all sorts of great things. And when I'm listening to you speak there, what, what jumps to mind is just to say that this, you know, if this is sounding like some one-man band, maverick entrepreneur breaking good, this uh, entrepreneurship is a team effort. And the only way I could do this was by having an, an amazing team of, of, of people. And this is not false modesty at all. This is just the truth. Um, the idea, yeah, was mine. Um, it got leadership support, but then that was the lightning rod for so many people to to come together and get after this common cause. And yeah, we had we had some great successes. We had some spectacular failures, but I think the numbers in our first 10 years, and I was there probably 14 years from the very beginning, uh, you know, we provided, you know, from a standing start, about a quarter of a billion worth of, of services in over 80 countries around the world. And yeah, thousands of, of, of Accenture people had been through the program. Some of them have gone on into the sector and are doing amazing things themselves. Uh, and I was probably obsessed with the traditional metrics of success, you know, how many people and, and how many projects and the value. Some of these numbers I've just quoted you, but it's actually since leaving the firm that I, I do have the opportunity to take a step back and, and yeah, maybe nostalgically, but see that actually some of the, the most impactful things were not anything that I was measured on in, in some way or targeted, things I might not even be aware of. Um, you know, the email that comes through from somebody who uh, has, has, has done something amazing in their career as a result of the project that they've done. You can't really measure the impact of that at all. There's another lovely um, anecdote, I guess, that that you know inspires me. Certainly, it's one of these things that keep you going. But um, I uh, spoke at an event. It was uh, an event uh, for an organisation called Women's Fear. So that was me in front of 500 uh, all women uh, audience, which was quite daunting, I have to tell you. And um, there was another person there called uh, Kaori Fuji. She lives in New York, uh, amazing uh, Japanese solo flute player, uh, one of the best, I think probably the best in, in Japan. And she tells me a few years on that some throwaway line in a, in a presentation uh, that I gave about not thinking that development was for me. I thought it was for doctors and nurses and teachers, not for business people. That little throwaway line, a casual line, um, made her think about her music and her flute playing and maybe that she could use it in a different way. And she tells me that it inspired her to start uh, what's called Music Beyond, uh, which is training in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, an all-women ensemble to take up instruments and, and, and play that wouldn't have otherwise be playing. And they're, they're doing some amazing, amazing things. So I give that as an anecdote that, it's not always what you measure and what you're targeted on and what you believe is important that is important. It can be these other things. And for all the ones you find out about, there may be another 10 that you don't find out about, these ripples that go out. So, yeah, focus on the traditional metrics of success, but be open-minded that there may be some other metrics of success uh, that you're less aware of, and they're equally important. 
Well, what I love that I think you spoke to when you talked about it couldn't have been done without, you know, all the folks on your team was that maybe what inspires me most about the story you've told and the impact it had was that you took your first spark of breaking good, which was this, you know, an article you read, which led to that trip and that field work. And then in many ways, I feel like you recreated that for thousands of people, um, people who were working in business and who, you know, had heard about this and were willing to take the chance to have that experience because it was provided to them to go somewhere where, you know, there were less resources, it was more vulnerable, and see how they could apply their skills and have that breaking good experience themselves. And like you said, each individual takes it a different way. And I think that's the beauty of it. And that's the beauty of the, the you know, the initiative you started and the, the program that you created Accenture was that it had so many different permutations, all these different projects, all these different, you know, thematic areas, impact areas, and therefore it could actually impact and help so many people find their passion of the issue area or the region of the world that they cared about and that you gave them a pathway to see that through. So I think in what you shared there, you're right. The metrics, I, we could go on on the, the 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 money, which is important, you know, for the bottom line because for the greater company that's important. But when it comes to you, the person who you know had the idea, who helped it happen, that that is the most significant thing for you. I, you know, I really um, share that Excellent. value good, as well. Good man. Yeah, and 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 you know, if you it, the, these things are not not necessarily anything that you get paid more for, you get rewarded for, or a pat on the back. The things that are probably the most important, uh, you'll get no return on uh, yourself personally. Um, But it's the right thing to do. If you're sure you're doing things with the right reasons, then there will be huge ripple effects um, out there. But if you're doing it for the money, (laughs) that might be be a different career, right? Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think there's Thank ways you. you could tie the two together, balance them. Um, and speaking of balance, I, again, one of my biggest takeaways from your book, The Entrepreneur, um, was that it was not a normal business book. And the reason it was a must read, I think, is it's all about how you take on your mental health in the workplace, which, as you mentioned before, is something that I think a lot of people you know, just say, well, that's part of our work culture is you burn yourself out and you work ridiculous hours and you check your work email on the weekends, et cetera. Um, so, and then the story you tell in the book is very personal and it's very real. Um, and the truth is that mental health with colleagues is easy to ignore and it's stigmatized. And I think that after your Accenture, so now we're kind of coming closer to present day on your journey, this is something new that you've broke good on. And so I wonder if you could share a little bit about, um, you know, your, latest work around wellness and mental oh sure health. i mean it's it's something that um yeah is quite personal uh and is at the heart of the the book i hadn't intended writing a book uh, at all i'd intended carrying on doing what i was doing and um without going into detail i had some kind of incident late 2014 was it a, a burnout a breakdown uh a, a, a spiritual awakening who who knows i've had all these different scenarios <laughs> explained to me but I was working too hard, probably. I was under quite a bit of pressure. Um, and I found myself for five days and nights in um, a psychiatric, psychiatric hospital in Glasgow. Uh, and if people haven't noticed it so far on the uh, call, I am, I'm actually from Scotland, and that's where the accent is. So I found myself back in my native country 
in this somewhat surreal thing. You know, uh, I'd seen programs on television or films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but for me, mental health issues were were for other people. Uh, I was happy in my job, by and large, doing something I believed in, came from a good, stable family. I had enough money. My health was decent. Why would this happen to me? But it did. And a main reason for writing the book was the stigma that you talk about. There is still stigma uh, in business to talk about this. It's not easy to talk about um, these things. But if everyone keeps quiet, then no one will feel empowered to, to talk. So it's at the heart of the book. Um, the book is basically asking, you know, <laughs> did I go Did I go a bit nuts or is it actually the system that's crazy? Uh, and so I'm holding a mirror up to the system. Is it so crazy to suggest that business has more than just making short-term profit? There's more to business than that. There's purpose. Um, and it's talking about driving the change bottom-up and and also, if we are going to address this issue of mental health, uh, which is a crisis in the US, it's a crisis in um, the UK, it's a crisis in many different cultures and countries around the world, I don't believe we can address it at the level of the individual in isolation from looking at the organisations and the system in which that individual is working about working in. And to, for my money, the current state of affairs in some private sector companies, the economic system that we're working within is actually the crazy thing. Um, and this myopic pursuit of short-term profit over every other consideration, be that the environment, be that the people that are providing that profit, is what is crazy. Um, so that's that's my kind of soapbox uh, spiel on, on mental health, if you will. Uh, there are a lot of people, I think, suffering in silence. and. Um, we need to have more of a dialogue around this. Yeah, Gib, you, you as you know, one of my mentors kind of helped me to open up on that um, because one of the hardest things I think as being on the pioneering end of breaking good is that oftentimes your projects, the things that you do go on to wild success and, you know, it, even gets taken over by others. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you personally get to enjoy the full benefit of the project you started, of the breaking good you began at the organization. And I think that was something I had a lot of trouble with early in my career was that I would see my projects doing well only to be taken away from me. And then I was kind of put off in the corner because I broke rules, I broke norms. And I felt like, but I created this to get it there and now it's being taken away from me. And I think that was a huge point of burnout um, for me, and I guess my what I'm saying here is one of the most important things that you showed me was actually that you need to have a network of people that when things get tough, you're able to call that colleague, that friend, and have the beer with them and talk it through because then all of a sudden sometimes those things start to sound a little petty and small and you can move past them. So I think building a network is something you showed me. Um, is super important uh, to having that mental wellness. Uh, the other thing that I think you showed and you talked about here is being in touch with yourself in, in you know, being okay with, with you know, for sure. taking a break. It's a, it's a sign of strength, I would say, for sure, deciding to do that. Great. Well, we got a few more minutes here, so I'm going to go – to my kind of last question, my last area of topic, uh, which is 
I think a lot of people who will be listening to this podcast, the audience that I'm you know, reaching out to are those who are breaking good or are thinking about breaking good or have been inspired by some of the stories they're going to hear on here. So for those who are just getting started to try to bring purpose to their professional lives, uh, what advice would you give them? What areas do you think uh, they should be looking at for um, their efforts? Well, my my big focus um, is around entrepreneurship, as I've, I've mentioned before, and this notion of how we might awaken the socially motivated um, entrepreneurs inside large systems, inside large organizations, and getting these organizations to change just by a little bit. So that's really, uh, there will be entrepreneurs within government, there will be entrepreneurs within uh, NGOs as well, and I don't know who will all be listening to this, but all of these people I am really targeting and just saying to them, the answer for them will be very, very personal and very, very different. I don't think there's a cookbook, um, cookie cutter thing that I can I can say. If you do this, you do that, then you're going to find your purpose. You're going to find uh, the job uh, that's for you or the role that's for you. What I would say is that we tend to be so busy, so. Um, tied up with our day-to-day stuff, always online, always responding. Uh, We're almost permanently living in an existence of semi-distraction. So I think it's it's finding that space uh, to be still enough and quiet enough that the little pinging sound that's in the back of your head saying, what about this? This This little pinging, this little voice that is actually suggesting that you take a different path from maybe the one that you're on, or you take a brave move or a brave step. And it's probably a very scary voice to begin with. It's probably suggesting something to you that is out of the norm, out of your comfort zone, um, will make you stand out, will put you at risk, might put your job at risk, might make people think you've gone a little bit nuts. We're all a little bit nuts, I think, hopefully. I know you are as well, Joe, anyway, in a good way. But... um, you know, find yourself and, and, and allow that kind of voice to, to, to be listened to. And again, it's a very personal thing. It will be different for different people. But just take the plunge, listen to the voice, do that first little step. It doesn't have to be a big step. It might be writing an email to somebody. It might be, I don't know, doing a, a podcast like you're doing here, which is quite a big step, I would say. But doing that thing that you feel is the right thing to do but it's the kind of scariest thing to do. And um, and then fasten your seatbelt and see what happens after that and follow the purpose. Thanks to our guest, Gib Bullock, for joining us on the show and sharing his story. You can follow him on Twitter at Gib Bullock or get in contact and learn more at his website, gibbullock.com. His book is The Entrepreneur, Confessions of a Corporate Insurgent, available on Amazon.com. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please rate, subscribe, and leave a review. And don't forget to join us for the next episode of Let's Break Good. But life still goes on. I can't get used to living without, living without, living without you by my side.